Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Hi, Uli. How are you today? I'm great. I'm excited about today's interview. Tell me about our guest today. Our guest today is, uh, in English, we say Robert Couturier. Uh, in French, Robert Couturier. He is one of my dear friends, and he is a renowned interior designer and architect uh, with a phenomenal career. He's been based in New York for the last several decades, even though he grew up in and is from and was trained in France. He uh, routinely appears on most influential interior decorators and architects in the world kind of lists. So El Decor, British House and Garden. He's also quite an elegant man in person. He uh, was on Van has been on Vanity Fair's International Best Dressed list and was an arbiter of that list for some time. Uh, and he is just a wonderful person. And as you'll as you'll hear and as you'll see, one of the many amazing things about Robert is that he combines this really incredible aesthetic refinement with profound thoughtfulness and kindness. So I always learn from him, but I also just love being around him because he's so deeply kind. So since we're on Zoom, is this shirt okay to wear? Because he's going to see me now in a minute. And you said one of the best dressed people on the planet. I'm going to be wearing this shirt. Am I okay? Am I, okay? I love your shirt, actually. And, and Uli, you know, Robert, A, I have to tell myself that he's not that judgmental about what we wear or I could never see him in person as often as I do. Uh, but also I think that his artist's eye, his artistic eye, will appreciate how nice that bright blue is on you. It's oh, great. Well, let's hope for the best. And... I saw on Instagram, I followed him, he's a really beautiful Instagram. Um, he has three dogs called Zadok, Zazu, and Dora. So you can relate to him too because you have four dogs at home and he has three really beautiful uh, dogs at his home. Well, he actually now has five dogs. Okay. Um, so what is it? Zadok, Dora, Clara, Hercule. And Zazu. And Zazu. And they're all Shih Tzus. They're rescue dogs. They've come from these really bad circumstances, and all my dogs are rescue dogs as well. Um, but Robert's rescue dogs live the kind of life that I think I, as a human being, aspire to live and am envious of. So his the photos of them on Instagram, you always see them lounging on, you know, chairs that once belonged to Marie Antoinette, you know, eating out of perfect little antique bowls. But they uh, they came from very difficult circumstances and. Um, it's part of Robert's kindness that he um, he always makes a point to kind of take these dogs in who've, who've had difficult lives. He's a vegetarian. He uh, always sends me clips that are adorable clips of like cows or pigs being freed from slaughterhouses that make you never want to eat meat again. Um, yeah. But he's not um, judgmental or dogmatic in his approach. He's just somebody who um, who puts a lot of love into the world along with a lot of beauty. And while we're in the pandemic, he'll zoom in from Connecticut, I believe, and maybe we'll hear one or two or five of the dogs in the background today. Here's hoping. Well, I really look forward to it. I'm so glad we're getting to speak with him. Robert Couturier. I take the first question. So, Will Robert, we? thank you so much for joining us on Zoom. Yeah. You're and very so welcome. The first question is, um, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Okay. Um, I don't know if I would want to know perfect happiness. 
because once it's gone, I'll never get it back. So I'm not sure about perfect happiness. <laughs> I'm not even thinking about perfect happiness. No. I think maybe in the okay. future at some point, but I that's think a, perfect happiness is answer. impossible. Uh, okay. what, is your, what is your greatest fear? My greatest fear when someone screams at me, it terrifies me. I just lose every, uh, everything. <laughs> it makes me want to go to the loo in my pants. <laughs> it's true because it reminds me of my mother. <laughs> oh, your mother screamed at you It's true. Oh my God, are you kidding? Those I would, it would like, no I wouldn't know what to do. Just be, <gasps> And, and you know, that's the problem today because well, if I have a client who starts screaming at me, I, I see, oh my God, it's mother. <laughs> oh, so well, that's, that's exactly what I was going to ask. To what extent, as an architect and an interior decorator, yeah, people yell at you sometimes, no? Oh, of course. It just makes me completely, it makes me lose it. I feel I should have pampers or something. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Well, those do exist if, uh, if, if it ever comes to that. Well, I think we'll wait. Uh, well, man, what is the trait? What, what is the trait that you most deplore in yourself? Wastefulness. It's just, it makes it just, okay. I'm, very, I, I'm very wasteful. I just try to control myself, but you know, one day we talked about it with Carrie. Is that when my secretary screamed at me because of my socks? And it's like, I know I'm wasteful, but <laughs> I can't control myself. It's just awful. And that's, that's the wait, trait I'm most important to, myself. To, wait, and because of your socks, when? it was because you spend so much money on socks? Was that right? Or she didn't like the color? What was it again? No, no, because I spent so much money on socks, you know. So... It's just a small example, but it's just, I tend to be a little wasteful, and that's deplorable. <laughs> what is the trait you most deplore in other people? Meanness and cruelty makes me crazy. And maybe injustice. Mm-hmm. Let's put it injustice, meanness, and cruelty. Injustice first. Mm-hmm. I think injustice, yeah. somebody who is unjust intends to be cruel, and somebody who's cruel intends to be mean. So maybe one, mm-hmm. you know, as a consequence of the others, I don't know which one comes first, but either one of the three is pretty ghastly. Yeah. 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 Are there particular instances of that that especially make you crazy towards animals, towards other people? What, uh, what is the worst of the worst in that deplorable trait? I think uh, people who are cruel about others to us who try to destroy others, that makes me crazy. And especially if they do it in a, in a non-obvious way and are suggesting mean things about others. And that makes me mad. I mean, there's an extent mm. to which, you know, gossip is something that I can partake in because I think it's a social game. But a cruel gossip and a cruel judgment makes me crazy and injustice in general and cruelty to animals makes me really mad and cruelty to children i guess yeah yeah Yeah. makes me crazy (laughs) 
Oh, which living person do you most admire? I think I most admire as a living Greta Thunberg. I think she's oh. completely amazing. I think that she's an amazing character. How can you take so much responsibility at 15 years old? I think, oh, how old is she? 16? Yeah. I think she's really, really, really small. She, so I think she's an amazing character. Yeah. yeah and I think yeah. today is something like week, week 96 of the climate strike. So every Friday for the last 96 weeks, he has been sitting outside the Stockholm, the seat of, of government and demonstrating really impressive. Yeah, incredible. What is your greatest extravagance, Robert? Too much stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Do you care to elaborate? What kind of stuff? Like household. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was thinking about it today with a bit of shame and that goes with wastefulness. You know, it's just Jeffrey and I having lunch in the dining room and the dogs next to me. And then in the kitchen, there were, I don't know, like seven people. And you think, do, do two people need seven people? I don't know. Did you make that, them lunch? <laughs> yeah. I think it's probably, that's probably my greatest extravagance. Yeah. Yeah. But you find it reassuring at the same time, no? As you know, it's my greatest reassurance. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I know that everything will be taken care of without me doing anything is good. That is good. Okay. good. Uh, Robert, what is your current state of mind? Um, you know, the funny thing is, is that I'm by nature I'm an anxious person. And I think that since the beginning of that COVID-19, I'm much less anxious than I used to be. I guess I would be good on the Titanic, you know? It's just like everyday good thing. It's like, oh my God, I can't stand it. Something awful is going to collapse in my head. And now that everything is so crazy, I just look at it and think, okay, that's a natural way of being. So I guess I'm, I'm fed up with confinement because I think it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's very depressing. But at the same time, I'm much less anxious than I ever was. So I'm in the sort of this strange, happy and worried and everything at the same time, but much less anxious. It's oh, confusing time. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I see what you mean. There's also because there isn't this, since there's so much to worry about, you sort of settle into it. Completely. And it's very odd also. One day I was asking... You know, my friend, our friend, Cecile, who's always right, as Caroline says. Yes. And, and I was telling Cecile, I said, I'm really, I feel very guilty. And she said, what? And she said, I feel so guilty that I'm, everything is going so well at the moment. I feel very guilty. And then she looked, she looked at me on my Zoom call and she said, and that is good, why? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. So, and I said, well, I guess, no, it's not good. It's just... You have to be very grateful for how good it is for us at the moment, and especially when everything is happening around the world in a way that it is. But it is a very sort of déchirant kind of a, of a position in which you are uh, worried and hurt by what's happening around the world, but your own personal situation is, is just wonderful. I mean, I'm in a lovely house, in a lovely garden, I have lovely dogs, and, you know, it's just this, this so shock that exists between reality, two realities that have nothing in common. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, Robert, the next question is, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Being um, conservative or being sage, as we say in French. I don't know how would you translate sage in English, but the sort of, you know, the sort of people who are full of wisdom, I think it's totally overrated. It's like people who are, uh, you know, this people who do yoga and they said, you know, I've, I've reached internal peace. And you look at them and you say, what crock of shit is this? Because <laughs> I think it's like, <laughs> no one, I think is like that. I think that's to me, the greatest overrated virtue. I can't, I can't stand that. Yeah. And yet I, you're, I admire it. I think it would be wonderful if I felt it, but it's just to me, it's the highest, improbability in human nature that one would pretend to feel I've reached nirvana. She's like, excuse me. But it's actually <laughs> interesting. I, I had a, I had a, a Buddhist teacher come to my class and one of the students said, so when you reach awareness or nirvana, whatever the state is called, are you totally free? And he said, Oh no, no, no. Then you're obligated to the whole world. And then the student <laughs> said, Oh, okay. And I guess I won't be doing that because the student thought you then you can be just your totally your selfish self. And the Buddhist monk said, no, 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 no. Once you reach that state, you are completely bound to the suffering of all the world. Exactly. That's why that sort of people who pretend that make me crazy. That, that's right. Yeah. So this, this monk felt that like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders after meditating for 60 years. It was not liberation from the world. Yeah. Exactly. There's only one liberation is when you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Not to pull any punches. Um, on what occasion do you lie? Well, I try never to lie. But when someone asks me, how are you? I always lie. Because <laughs> that, you know, like, how are you? I think the person is not going to listen to you anyway. So you could say anything. And I just usually, I just, I find it's a purposeless thing and I kind of lie because if I'm not feeling well, I'm not going to tell the person I'm feeling well. So I, I guess I most lie when someone asks me how I am. Yeah. It's true that that's not a question that people usually are looking to get a thoughtful and no. specific answer to, right? It's just exactly. a form. Yeah. It's so, a form. Yeah. It's a form. And I think like most formulas, I think it's, it's really bad because it makes us uh, not care about what the other says. And I think it's one of those questions that one shouldn't really ask if one doesn't want to hear the truth. And the problem is that no one wants to hear the truth when you ask how you are, how are you? Right. You know? So it's one of these sort of bad questions. And I don't know how to, you know, I don't know what to change it for because you have to, you know, but it's, anyway. Let's try the next one on this list here, which is a very uh, strange question. What do you most dislike about your appearance? Not to look like the David of Michelangelo, truly. <laughs> <I would lose. laughs> and that's it. <laughs> that's the whole complaint? <laughs> that's the whole complaint. I think I want to look like him. I mean, I want to have a bigger wee-wee than he does, but I think... <laughs> But truly, I think I, I deplore that. <laughs> oh, 
So that's that's the paragon. Anything beneath, below that is not quite living up to that standard. Exactly. It's like I'd rather, you know, it's like having a mirror in your bathroom. I think past a certain age, you should be veiled. You know, it's like I don't want to see myself. <laughs> but of course, I'm imagining there's actually a British playwright who wrote a play about David. But I'm sure that David, he probably felt the same way. That's the sad truth about humanity. He probably looked himself and said, oh, I wish I was looking like this. So the question opens up something. I, somehow, David, the way he stands there, it doesn't strike you as someone who was completely 100% happy with himself. There's a kind of... No. <laughs> but I think it's probably part of our own human nature, right? Yes. As you said. You know, when I was growing up, I, I had curly hair. Well, now I have no hair. But I had, I had really curly hair. And my thing is that I've always wanted to have straight hair. I wanted to do like, you know, like people like really wasty people with really long straight hair and then they, could, they can pull it back like that. And then it comes naturally back in front of their eyes with that beautiful straight hair. And it was always my regret not to have that. I just, and I went once to my mother's hairdresser and I had him straighten my hair. And... I went back home for, and my grandfather was at home for dinner and he looked at me in complete horror and said, what did you do? And I said, well, it's not a drug straight hair. <laughs> I must have been 15 or 16 or something like that. I just wanted to have this straight hair. Oh, <laughs> I love the flipping motion you do with your hand. On yeah, you. it's just like, oh. My God, your hair and your eyes. You know? Someone who has like totally, totally straight hair with not one movement. I always really, really wanted curls. I was, I thought the idea that your hair just like has its own life and its own dimension <laughs> was such an envy and still is. I thought that was the greatest happiness one could have. Yeah. Well, here we are. <laughs> yeah. I know, Uli, I'm the exact same way. That My hair has never had a speck of a curl in it, and that's all I want. Robert, our friend Isaac Mizrahi, who's done this show as well, to me, that's the kind of hair I always wish I had, right? It's sort of, as well, he says, yeah. it's zone. it springs in all directions, and it always looks great. But, yeah. but, but, but David has curly hair, so how did you come around to that? How did you reconcile that? It's, his general, it's general appearance, you know, this sort of naturally muscular way. Uh, the sort of uh, thing that he looks like. It's like naturally sports, like sportsman-like and naturally sort of outdoorsy. I mean, I was, you know, I was always clumsy. And <laughs> I think it was like, I couldn't do any sport. I couldn't play tennis. I could hardly swim. The whole idea of having this sort of ability for your body to do anything that you wanted is something that I've always desired and could have never achieved. But, you know, I guess with time, you get to terms with it, you know? <laughs> as long as the mirror is veiled, we can accept it, I suppose. Exactly. But you need a failing mirror. Yes. Or you know, I've started dimming the lights or just not even turning on the lights in my loo when I'm looking at my face. And I find that helps a lot. Listen, one day I had a client who sort of, uh, it was an older lady, it was absolutely divine. And she, we're doing this really fancy place and she said to me, Robert, I want to have pink mirrors everywhere. And I said, pink mirrors in your bathroom? Too? She says, yes, I want pink mirrors. And I said, but you won't be able to really see yourself. And then she looked at me and she said, pointing at her own face and she said, do you think I want to look at that when I wake up in the morning? <laughs> 
<laughs> so did you do it? Did she get pink mirrors? Pink mirrors everywhere. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Which living person do you most despise? Oh, Donald Trump, darling. Yeah. With every fiber of my body. Mm. This, I think that probably if he disappears, there'll be the next one. But I think that this is, it's just, it's just appalling every day, all day, everything, all things. It's mm -hmm. just, there is absolutely no redeeming quality to his appearance in any level whatsoever. Yeah. It's just, it's just, I despise him. What is the quality you most like in a man? Kindness. Mm. By far. Yeah. yeah. Kindness, openness, kindness. Yeah. You know? I, yeah, I, I love that answer from you too, because you're in a business that is, you know, based on, on visuals, on appearances, and yet you are, and you have such a, obviously such a refined visual sense, such refined uh, aesthetics, and yet you are someone, for me, for whom the kind of the defining characteristic is your own kindness. And um, so it's, it's not surprising to hear that that's what you value in others, but it's nice for you to, to underscore that, I think. Thank you. I do. It's yeah. very important for me. Yeah. What is the quality you most like in a woman? Kindness as well. Yeah. You know, I think that um, there's nothing that there's there's nothing that you cannot get if you are kind. There's nothing that, and I think the. I mean, I know it's it's really kind of uh, a platitude, but I think if everybody was kind, I think the world wouldn't be what it is today. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think kindness, even beyond intelligence or refinement or elegance or any of that, I think from kindness, everything can come. And I think that you can forgive a lot in people who are kind. I think, you know, I used to think that people who are vulgar aren't forgivable, but I think someone who's vulgar and kind is completely forgivable. <laughs> somebody, who, somebody who's distinguished and mean should be cast into hell. You know, I think that kindness is, the basic of everything, really. Yeah. Um, which words or phrases do you most overuse? It's weird. I always say it's weird, not knowing really <laughs> what is weird. <laughs> or, or sometimes when somebody asks me something that I don't want to answer, I say, oh, I love it. Which is, so it's like two sentences that I sort of say a lot that I don't mean anything and that actually are completely overused <laughs> and I shouldn't use anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, like what kind of thing would someone say where then you just say, I love it, just to stop the conversation? Uh, somebody wants my opinion about, somebody I don't really know or like much, asked me the, his opinion about, you know, how is, I don't know, what I think about his suit. And yeah. then I say, oh, I love it. And, and like, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not really. Not really. Actually, I don't love it. Or oh, it's weird when somebody, you know, when I have a client who says, uh, I want to do this in my house. And then I look at him and I say, oh, that's a little weird. <laughs> you know, actually, we have a friend who, to whom I say that all the time. And then he always says, okay, when Robert says it's weird, means I shouldn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Robert, who, what or who is the greatest love of your life? Well, my husband. You know, I was actually looking at him this morning and thinking, no, this afternoon. He's always in a bad mood. And I always call, I always call him, you know, it's like grumpy. And I said, you're like one of the seven dwarves, you're grumpy. And then he gets upset at me. And I said, well, you see, you're grumpy. And I'm thinking, okay, he's grumpy. However, you know, I love him. I just don't know what I would do. I don't know how my life would be without him. I can't conceive of my life without him. And I guess it's, you know, it also includes, and it includes my dogs, includes my friends, it includes the people I love who make, you know, who make my world so lovely. Yeah. And uh, so here he is. Yeah. <laughs> and well, he's kind. You know, yes. that's one thing is that, okay, he's grumpy and, and uh, all of that, but he's kind. He's kind. He has a heart of gold. He is good. Yeah. And I wish sometimes I was as good as he is. Mm. Oh. No. I think you're pretty good too. But, oh, thank yeah. you, Dan. but, but yeah. I can have cutting judgments that he will never have. It's true. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's lovely. Uh, well, we're back to the theme of happiness again. When and where were you happiest? I always think that uh, I'll be happiest tomorrow. Hmm. You know, it sort of helps going to sleep. You know, when I was actually going through throes of depression and waves of depression when I was growing up, I, always, um, I would always think about something that I was going to get, whether a pair of shoes or, or a suit or something. And I would go to sleep thinking, I'll get this tomorrow and tomorrow I'll be happy. I guess it's sort of like this, you know, this sort of thing that you look forward to happiness rather to enjoy it in a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a reader of Proust, you know that that's how Proust writes about happiness, right? That there's yes. always the anticipation. If only I can get invited to that party. If only I can meet those people. If only I can travel to this place, then somehow happiness will, will materialize. And, yeah. And of course it never does. It doesn't. No. And I think that's also the the thing about happiness is that one should never define what happiness is because once you have it, it's gone. Yeah. And I think that's, I think my grandmother, my mother's mother always used to say that. She said, happiness is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in this, that you can't think you are, you're going to have, you know, she's the one who could see that written, the description of, her, of his grandmother's death by Tolstoy. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. She was the one who told you to read that, right? Yeah. No, she's the one who sort of was reading it because she'd written my essay. And she looked at me and said, Robert, this is all straight out of Tolstoy. Oh. And I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You had borrowed Tolstoy's essay on his dying grandmother for school and your grandmother. Yeah. Figured out. She said, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still alive and you're not Tolstoy. Exactly. <laughs> uh, which which talent would you most like to have? Oh, my greatest wish is to have practical talents, like changing a light bulb or, you know, unplugging a loo or something like that, which I have no practical talent whatsoever. And I always thought that it would be so nice to have some practical skills that I could, you know, understand the motor of a car or 
change a light bulb or cook an egg or something like that. And yeah. that's that's the talent I feel I wish I had. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it escapes me. I climb onto a ladder and I fall. I change a light bulb and electrocute <laughs> myself. It's just like, not a good thing. <laughs> if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, I didn't think about that one. Um, I don't know. Maybe 20 years, lop off 20 years. Okay. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I don't know. I don't know because I think it's, a, it's not such a good thing to think about oneself because there's nothing that you really can change about yourself. Um, it's like, you know, hoping you can change people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when you're young, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you date somebody and you think, well, you know, I can change that and, and them. And, and the fact is that you can't. And I think growing up, you realize, and aging, you realize that it's pointless to wish for somebody to change. And I think the only thing that you can do is to learn to accept the person or accept yourself. I think that's, um, which is why I don't think I would, I mean, I, there are many things I would change about myself materially and superficially. I think I would love to be 25 years younger. I'd love to have Michelangelo's body. I'd love to be, you know, infinitely more intelligent than I am. I'd love to, I'd love all of that. But the thing is, is that, it's not something that I'll ever be able to do. So I'm not going to think about it much. Yeah, I like this answer. Yeah. 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 I had a, um, when my first marriage was coming to an end, I, I tried to persuade my husband to go with me to a, um, like a marriage counselor or something. And I remember the, one of the phrases that this man used, he was called Dr. Spitz and he was so smart and insightful and, and my husband was talking about all the things about me that needed to be different if we were going to be able to stay married. And the, the therapist leaned forward and said, in my experience, marriages where you have a high change agenda for your spouse are doomed to fail. And it, it stayed with me. You know, that you can't, you can't, even if there are, as you say, things you'd like to change about yourself or behaviors you'd like to see modify and in the person that you live with to have a high change agenda, just keep thinking to yourself, oh, this will work once I get him to not be that way. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a pointless exercise. But you know, do you remember that, um, that sort of conversation between Madame de Tourvelle and um, in the Liaison Dangereuse and, the, and uh, Vicomte de Valmont's aunt? And mm-hmm. the, the, the aunt leans down to her and said, to hope to be Happy through love is the most, um, the most wasteful hope. Oh, and, you know, yeah, but you know, the thing is, is that there are many things that way that are true is that you can't expect things to be different than what they are or, you know, to be made happy through love is... You can, I mean, loving is the most important thing that you can do, but it's not something that makes you happy. It's, it shouldn't be something that makes you happy. It should be something that fulfills you. It should be something that makes you all. It should be, but I don't know that, and happiness isn't, happiness isn't a state. It's a fleeting moment. 
So mm-hmm. to think that love makes you happy, then, you know, love is up and down. Love is going sideways. Love is all of that. And I think to be, to think that you'll be made happy by love is, is to be disappointed, I think. And is, is in the Liaison Dangereuse, she says this as counsel to say, um, beware. But I think we're always tempted to think that we will be redeemed in some ways through love, that someone, we will be seen, uh, recognized. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that it's, it's one of the, I mean, it's part of the human conditions. I mean, Balzac is full of it. You yeah. know, it's sort of, uh, it's not... It's something that we all hope and it's something that we want and maybe it's good to desire it. Maybe it's good to want it, but to expect it as a state is not right. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Oh, that to have survived my crazy childhood. (laughs) I think that's, I think, you know, my first, my first analyst, the one that did this, uh, I did, you know, analysis with and all that, he said that they are sort of like cowboy mothers who sort of put a notch on their, you know, on their gun because they've killed someone, you know, (laughs) 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 but, and he said, well, your mother is one of those, you know, she is like, and I mean, I'm being very mean publicly about her, which I shouldn't be, but, you know, I guess circumstances made her this way rather than maybe nature. But, you know, I think that nonetheless, having survived this childhood, I find is, you know, quite a good achievement. Oh my God. Not to have sunken into a pool of depression. Yeah. No, what, from, what, from what I know about your childhood, I agree. It's staggering and, and it makes me, speaking of injustice and cruelty and how, how they make us crazy, it makes me crazy to think about how unkind your parents were to you. Uh, can you tell the story about, just to give a, a specific instance of the unkindness, how uh, family vacations or school vacations, how your parents arranged those for you? So um, I was sort of, uh, my mother would ship me away. And so anywhere where somebody would take me for the month of August or the month of July, and it could be in completely crazy places like a country at war or uh, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> and and it would be just so like, okay, you go away. And the funny thing is, is that although those places where I was sent were very seldom completely wonderful, when I came back home was always horrible. It was always, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and then she would send me to boarding school two weeks earlier then, oh. uh, then the boarding school date. Oh. So I was like, oh, it's finished. Vacations are over. You go back to boarding school. She's like, oh, okay. So I would, and then I would go back to boarding school. The boarding school was empty. There were like three other kids like me who right. would sort of be, you know, sort of am pen, sort of being there waiting for the school to begin. Let me say, the only thing that was good about being at boarding school before everybody else is that I could choose the room in which I would sleep. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, so that that's was so- that. That was something. That was the great advantage. Oh, well, and let me ask you a psychoanalyst question, which you analysts, I'm sure, ask you. So the profession you've chosen is you, you mm. set up people's homes and the space they can be happy in. Is that related to that you were sent away from your home? Only this is the reason why I became what I became. I think it was always, always when I was growing up. I always 
and I don't want to dwell on this negativity of my past because it, it's, it's not who I am today. But it's true that I would always draw, you know, houses and I would always draw some like the perfectly happy family. There would always be a mother, a father and children and dogs. And it was, it, it was always, you know, the sort of this idea of a, of a happy family, which obviously, you know, I was not having. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're realizing that now. The next question is, if you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what or who would it be? I want to come back as a weekend fauteuil with royal provenance. <laughs> would be just perfect. <laughs> we'll, no. be sure, we'll be sure to include a picture of one of those fauteuils in the podcast. You can see what you want to come back as. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> And really, and I, I, my guess would have been maybe, or maybe my own preference, maybe just I'm imposing on you would have been uh, Louis says so Louis Quinze, really. I love the Louis Quinze armchairs. I mean, there's something that is, uh, you know, the sort of the the exuberance of the sculpting, and this sort of uh, it it feels, you know, this incredible not happiness, but this generosity of shape and form. There's, mm -hmm. uh, there's something that's sensual and, and, uh, and very harmonious in its own sort of curvy, curvilinear shapes yeah. that I find very, very, very pleasant. I think the utmost in elegance is obviously Louis says, but I think Louis Quinze is this, it's just this wonderful luxury and and there's something that's sort of gras you know and, and not gros but the little this you know you see these weekends women that's like a little bit fat but they're not fat they're just generously and shaped and there's something you know really wonderful i have this sculpture i have this painting of this weekends marquises that's up, marchioness that's upstairs and she has these little hands you know that are you can see that these hands have never done anything with long sort of tapered fingers and they look completely perfect. There's something about weekends that's sort of like that, that sort of incredible natural luxury. Yeah, you know? that sensuality too, as you say, yes. that you don't get from the kind of severity and purity of line in Luises maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, Luises is about sort of uh, almost putting a, uh, something around your brain. You know, there's something that's, that's a cage to a degree, but in a perfectly elegant and balanced and, and beautiful one. But we can is this, it's let go, you know, such as, uh, especially Regence, you know, sort of like, let's have sex, let's just enjoy ourselves, <laughs> you know, throw money out the window. Robert, you know. as someone who is kind of a plebeian and doesn't really need know the nuanced differences between the counts and this, <laughs> I... I could listen to this for a long time. You make it come to life. They actually okay. just made an entire armchair come to life for me. And I, I want to have, maybe not <laughs> me, I want to have this armchair. So <laughs> actually, you really make it feel like it's actually, it embodies an entire approach to life, which is really nice. It's very nice. It's very nice to listen to. Actually, we have to go on the, on this, but otherwise, I would continue to just have you talk about uh, this kind of. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what do you consider your? Oh, sorry. We'll cut. Where would you most like to live? At the Petit Trianon. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. explain just those who, for whom Versailles isn't always in their head as it is for you and me? <laughs> so the Petit Trianon is uh, a little palace that was actually built by Louis XV and that was given by Louis XVI to Marie Antoinette as her sort of uh, country house. And it's 10 minutes away from Versailles, from the castle itself. And it's this, it was built by Meek, and it's this incredibly beautiful balanced building, which is like, I would think, like one of these 16th century Italian houses. But the Italian houses had something that was unfinished, that was a little rough, which the Petit Rien doesn't have. It's a wonderful balanced ornament. It's all beautiful from outside to inside, from one facade to the other. And it's been copied many, many, many times and never being able to render that sort of moment of grace that I think that style had. And I think that's a beautiful building. Obviously, you know, I should say La Maison de Verre or something intelligent like that. But I think that uh, Le Petit Triano has this, always had had for me this um, this sort of dreamlike quality. And also I've always been, you know, very fascinated by Marie Antoinette. So obviously, you know, this was the, 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 the palace that I think, the house that I think was the most attractive ever. It was so beautiful. And this is where she learned that the revolution was happening. And, you know, there's something dramatic about it that, yeah. uh, that's, you know, it's like the grace of maybe this incredible grace and incredible elegance was never meant to be or never, you know, I don't know. It, but it's just there's something very poetic about that house, mm. which I loved. Uh, Robert, what is your most treasured possession? Honestly, I don't have any. I don't believe in, uh, in uh, material possessions much. I think that it can all be taken away, it can all go, it can all burn down. I don't think I would be, I don't think I want to be sad because something is broken. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, I'm, much, I'm much more keen on, on, friendly, on friends and, and loved ones and, than I am in, in possession. I would be very sad if my house burned down, but you know, I don't want to think that it would be the end of my life. And so I don't think a treasured possession other than an emotional one, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Um, not to be able to listen to music. Oh, okay. I think that would be, because music is to me, and it always has been, and I think that's a consequence of self childhood, the same way that I think I'm a designer because of that. I think that my grandfather was an incredible music lover. And um, he used, he was a little deaf. And when he stayed in the house, which he didn't do all the time, and when he did, he, my bedroom was near his office. And so he would put his, he was, he listened to music all the time. So he put his music really loud. And it always accompanied my best moments in childhood was to listen to his music drifting away from his office into my bedroom. And, you know, making silence in my own head to listen to it because it, the sound came somewhat muffled. So I had to sort of not think about anything else. And music has always been, for me, this sort of uh, reason to, to pause and for a moment of, 
of uh, abstract beauty, which I think is so crucial for my own form of balance, you know. I think I could feel absolutely terrible. And if I listen to Bach's Magnificat, then I sort of feel better, you know? Yeah. What is your favorite occupation? Uh, Dreaming. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, like when when we hang up a little later, I'm uh, going to go upstairs and sit in my bedroom and dream for about an hour and a half before yoga. And I think it's a wonderful thing to do with the dogs in my arms and sort of like dreaming. Yeah. I like that dream time is actually on your schedule. You know, yes. podcast, dreaming, yoga. <laughs> exactly. I never knew that about you. That's great. I'm going to take that as some inspiration. I think I'm going to do that after our podcast, too. That's a good idea. (laughs) One never dreams enough. That's good. I like that. (laughs) What is your most marked characteristic? Probably meaning, what do other people notice first about you? Um, I don't know. I think, I I don't know if I'm a good judge of myself. I think I can I can be um, as we say in French emporté. I can be I can have tantrums and which I think is a very unattractive quality or the flaw. And I think I don't I don't like that in me. But I think it's part of what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's and it scares people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I really don't want to scare people. But I think again, you know, it's sort of this sort of thing that you intend to repeat what you know. And I think that having been, you know, raised by two angry people, I think it comes out of me sometimes and I'm surprised myself at being, because it's not who I am and it's certainly not the image I want to project. And I, 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 it's just awful. What do you most value in your friends? Um, kindness. Understanding, kindness, uh, warmth. Um, love, uh, uh, you know, acceptance uh, for, you know, who I am. And it's just, I value my friends immensely. And I think that's also because of, you know, your friends are the family you choose. And uh, I intend to be passionate about my friends. And I have some very, very passionate friendships, which I treasure more than anything in my life. You know, it's funny these days, I was talking to a friend of mine and um, and we were talking about the fact that we were, you know, to a degree quite isolated and obviously, you know, not social at all, which is, I mean, it's probably the first time in my life since I'm 16 that I've stayed at home for dinner every night. And, um, and she said, well, the thing that is really interesting is that you realize that there are very few people that you really want to talk to or want to see. And it's true. But the, the people who are left, you know, are the people that you really can't live without. And I know that the friends that I have today are the people I could not live without. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Who, I'm so happy I get to ask you this question, Robert. Who are your favorite writers? Well, obviously Proust. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day. I was thinking about. I we have a friend. I have a friend who came, who, who came to dinner. And we're talking about French literature, and um, 
And you know, the funny thing is, is that obviously I think French literature is this whole. And I think that it's very difficult to like one without liking the other. I think yeah. it's easier to like Sacre, not like Dickens. But I think if you like Saint-Simon, it's difficult not to like Proust. Oh, and yeah. if you like Proust, how can you not like Stendhal? And if you don't like Stendhal, how can you not like Flaubert? And then if you like all of them, how can you not like Zola? And so it's, I think French literature is this monument of culture and, and it embodies and, in, and unco- encompasses, you know, Racine and Corneille and Victor Hugo and all these. And so I guess that my favorite writers are obviously Proust, then Stendhal, then Balzac. I think these are the three that, you know, I would go back to, like, for instance, I have next to my nightstand, in, on my nightstand, of, uh, La Princesse de Cadignan. And I am sort of, I just pick it up and I open it in the middle. And then it's like a conversation, a dinner dinner party of people and how they think about love and how they relate. And I sort of think, this is so wonderful. You know, it's, it's, it's this quality of writing, which has the beautiful writing, whatever they say is profound and intelligent and something you want to, learn and somebody that you want, you would like to share and something you would like to think. You know, the one thing about French literature is that you read it. I read sometimes Racine and I think, oh, I wish I spoke like that. Oh my God, wish, yeah. You know? That beautiful <laughs> French meter, the Alexandrian oh And you think, oh my God, could I speak this way? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Quels sont ces serpents qui sifflent sur vos têtes? That would be very nice to be able to say that. <laughs> What are those? What are those snakes who are hissing on your head? To translate for our, they're yeah. maybe they're like if you looked at my hair in the morning, maybe you could say <laughs> something like that. But um, no, I look at Jeffy's hair in the morning because he hasn't gone to the hairdresser. He can't for a long time, and I'm looking at him. So, quels sont ces serpents qui sifflent sur votre tête? Good when Francine comes in handy in the morning. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, one of the things you and I have talked about this, Robert, and in other contexts, just that one of the many things that's so delightful about Proust is the way he takes, Racine is sort of like the Shakespeare of the French tradition in the sense that it's, he's the kind of the summit of dramatic art in that national language and literature. And yet, as you say, like the, the language, the poetic language is so elegant, so precise, so limpid that it's hard not to take it seriously. And yet Proust really had this, had enormous fun inserting quotations from Racine into his book in comical contexts, like, yeah. you know, the serpents on your head that are standing yeah. up and whistling and comparing it to somebody's hair. He loved to do that. And he, he kind of gave me a different appreciation for Racine because I saw that all of a sudden you could take this monumental, perfect, exquisite writer and have fun with it. But, you know, I think that's the thing about Proust also, which I find really fascinating, is that, you know, you sort of start reading it when you're very young. So you're 16 or 17 and someone you say, well, you you should start reading Proust. And then obviously before you've read, you know, the whole of Jules Verne and you've, you know, you've read all these things and then you read and you learn about in reading him, you learn about other writers like, like Madame de Sévigné or like the Memoir de Saint-Simon. And I think that if I had read Proust so young, 
I wouldn't have read the memoir of Madame de Saint, uh, Madame de, <laughs> les, the letters of Madame de Sévigné. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have read La Rochefoucauld. I wouldn't have read, you know, any of those thinkers. And so this is one of these thinkers that make you think about other thinkers because there's not one thought that doesn't come from another. And that you, every thought relates to everything. And I think that's the one thing about Proust in his sort of artistic, you know, opinions is that it's all part of one and then you can't take one without taking the other. And I think that's what you learn about French literature. Then it's all, and then there's Gide afterwards and Giraudoux and there are all these different thinkers that you have afterwards and writers that are also belong in that tradition. And I think that's the thing about French culture, which I think was so wonderful in its slowly disappearing because I don't think there's contemporary French culture that has anything to do with that, except mm-hmm. your book, darling. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I, I would love to say that I paid you to say that. Thank you for saying no. that. But, um, who is your hero of fiction, your favorite fictional protagonist or protagonists? That's funny because I think it's actually, I was thinking about all the different ones and I think it's probably Fabrice Del Dongo. Oh, yeah. I, uh, he, he, there is something about him that makes it. Uh, first of all, I think La Chartreuse de Parme is one of the most deliriously romantic uh, novel that there is. I think La Sanseverina is a character, and the Count Mosca. I think all these characters are so divine, and and there is also something about you know sort of fate and destiny that sort of no matter what you do, it's, it's, you're never going to be able to make it work, but then you just do it because it is the way that you think you should be doing it. And I think, you know, Stendhal wrote everything about love, you know, the crystallization and everything. So it's, there's something that I think Fabrice, I like Fabrice Del Dongo. I love Stendhalian uh, heroes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would sort of think maybe Rastignac, or, but no, I don't like them. I think no. the one, you know, you don't want to be Rastignac. You don't want no. to be. You don't want to be. Uh, you know, you don't want to be the Baron Charlus. You don't want to be. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right. There's no character in Proust or Balzac that I that I would want to be. I think. No, there isn't any. And I think that, uh, and there isn't any Flaubert character that I'd like to be either, because I think, um, you know, uh, that poor woman who poisoned herself. Um, uh, Emma. Yeah, Emma Bovary is, oh my God, such a pitiful character. There is, I mean, no. Yes. I think her husband is dreadful, her lover is dreadful, she's dreadful, her son's dreadful. I mean, it's just like the whole, the whole, and that's the beauty of actually of, of French literature is that you could, you know, you, you sort of have all these characters that are so unappealing. And yet, because the prose and the story is so interesting that you still care for them and you care about them. When in fact, if they were put out of that prose and uh, you would sort of think, I don't care. Which is why those movies are such a waste of time. Madame Bovary in a movie is dreadful. Yeah. Anna Karenina in a movie is dreadful. Because you Anna- don't have the right... Yeah, I mean, Anna Karenina is fascinating to read about because of Tolstoy's, you know, of, of everything. But is she an admirable character? Uh, I'm going to ask you about one character who's played well in America out of French literature, which is Hugo's Les Miserables, Jean Valjean. 
Sort of, I wonder whether Les Miserables, because I was always interested that that connected to an American audience through the play, partly and the movies. I I don't I don't know why he is so connecting to the to the American psyche. I think to us growing up, I think Jean Valjean was um, because we are inherently horrible snobs was uh, considered as so inelegant that there was very. Yeah. Very few redeeming qualities to him. Although, you know, Tempête sous un crâne is something that obviously, you know, we read about. And it's just also, there was something Dickensian about Jean Valjean, which is, you know, you know, there was always, there was in Maupassant this incredible, incredibly interesting short story that was about women who were talking about love. And for them, love was only possible in between elegant characters that love couldn't happen to people who weren't elegant the way they were. And it's an histoire d'amour. So you, they, they, the, one of the persons who's at that dinner and talks, tells the story of a person who's actually completely uh, inelegant, who, who feels love, that love, isn't, love doesn't have to be something that's equated to class or, or elegance. It's, it's a feeling that all of us have. And I think that's the thing. We, it's difficult for French people who are inherently so superficial is to think that, and this is why the, you know, Victor Hugo is so interesting in the way that Jean Valjean becomes a character, that the little Cosette, and all these characters that we get attached to because, you know, we are more inclined to be interested by what happens to the Baron Charlus than what happened to Jean Valjean. I think this is interesting that in America, I think Jean Valjean and Cosette, because they come from nowhere and as he's unjustly accused or so, too severely punished, there's this kind of American idea that anybody could make it, unlike the French culture where being born into it is what gives you access. But there's a great love story between two people who are outcasts. Right you, com- you are completely right. And I think it is, actually, when you read it, it's in, in spite of yourself that you are yeah, that you love the characters and feel yeah. for the characters. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there might be also something about that French literature is that French literature is seldom about, um, and, that, and Caroline, you have to tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't know if it's so inherently about feelings for the people whose stories you're reading. And it's between form and function. And, and sometimes, and I think the character, I think the writer who was the most, where feelings that were the most attached to the characters is really Racine, to a degree. That yeah. you, you read about these characters and you feel what they feel. I mean, you know, Andromaque and all of them, you, you feel the pain that they feel. And it's, it's even Britannicus and all of them, you do feel. Whereas in, when you read a novel, a French novel, a French book, I think it's, the story is almost... Uh, you, I don't think you feel good or bad about the Duchesse de Guermantes. No. No. Um, but you do about Racine, the Racine heroine and heroes. That's, that's fascinating, Robert. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, I've, never, I've never really pondered this question, but I'm wondering if maybe it has something to do with, with genre that, you know, Racine, who is the great dramatist of, of the French tradition, a uh, 17th century writer, that he presented the paradox of his work is that he, he, his interest is in these tragic human passions, 
you know, passions yes. can never be realized, that are forbidden, that are bound to be doomed. And yet he presents those passions in the most... <laughs> sorry. Oh, that dog. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a dog barking. <laughs> oh, my suits. <laughs> Sweet animals, Maraschitsu. But no, but yeah. speaking of the eruption of passion, but, but that you have this tension between these, these passions that are so... It's like you're seeing people's hearts laid raw, you know, just everything. There's no skin. There's nothing. There's just this trembling, terrible emotion. And yet it's presented in this incredibly beautiful language. And you almost have the, not quite the inverse, but with the French novel a few hundred years later, what you have are, is kind of language that is showing you a world in all of its, often all of its ugliness and its banality and its, frivolity and its stupidity and it's uh that kind of seeing the world that accurately represented somehow leads you to less of an emotional investment in what the characters are are experiencing in that world so yeah i don't know what totally. is that changed but i think you're absolutely right that there's a difference but you know it's also interesting because when you read about balzac i mean there's not one character in the rougon macquart that you really want to feel any empathy or any sympathy oh. for and yet it's you can't put the book down because it's yeah. totally it's mm -hmm. totally fascinating and i don't know if for the french culture um the the personal identity sort of became less important than the class to which you belonged mm -hmm. and i don't know it, it's it's just really interesting in a way that sort of a, a human destiny in a sort of a in a, in the french in french literature is is in the, in the fact of Racine, it's a personal destiny. Yeah. But in the fact, in, in, in the subsequent novels uh, that of French literature, it's more about a class and what happens to your class and what's happened to your group, to your family, to all of that. And that your personal identity is, is sort of less important. And that's probably why I like Fabrice Del Dongo, because I think that he is, he is so much himself. You know, there is, he, he is who he is and he will carry on and he doesn't, I mean, of course he cares where he comes from and what is, you know, what his family is and what is, and all of that relates to, but it's, it's a personal thing. And I like that in that character, which is probably a character of fiction that I probably have the most, you know, sort of sympathy for. Yeah. Uh, which historical figure do you most identify with? A real person. I don't. I think that if I could, I would be. Um, I would love to have, you know, Bach's genius and 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 Immanuel Kant's clarity. But uh, I don't know. If there's any historical figure that I would, you know. I mean, there are many historical figures that I profoundly, deeply admire. But you know, whether I would want to be Churchill or Alexander the Great, no. You know. <laughs> I don't think, maybe Tiberius, no, not even, I mean, Tiberius, a horrible emperor. I don't know. There is, <laughs> <laughs> no, there is no historical creature, historical character that we particularly like to have been or admire. It's also that I think, you know, if you know a bit of history, I don't think there is any time that you would want to live more than the time you live in. Right. Simple access to hot and cold water and flushing loose. I think sort of, 
Yeah. Antibiotics, as some characters exactly. said, uh, Midnight yeah. in Paris. <laughs> Wouldn't you still want to live in a time with antibiotics? Uh, who are your heroes in real life? Um, you know, I, you know, I've always thought about sort of heroes in a way that, for instance, when you read the Haggadah for uh, Passover, you know, the real hero is really Moses, except mm -hmm. Moses isn't mentioned once, because uh, I think there is this sort of care that heroes should never be transformed into gods. Mm -hmm. And so I think about, you know, heroes in the way that... They, I think today who I would admire is are the people who care for the sick. I mean, obviously, I think the heroes are the doctors and the nurses who are in the hospitals caring for, you know, the millions of people who, who are sick and the hundreds of, the hundreds of thousands who have just died. And I think these are the real heroes of today. And I think it's interesting because a hero doesn't have to be somebody with a shield and a sword, you know, defeating the dragon. I think that the heroes today are those ones in PPEs, you know, it, and taking care. And it's, it's not because it's what, and I do profoundly believe in what I'm saying. I think that I wouldn't have the courage to do what they do. I really wouldn't because I would be terrified. I think to wake up every morning, to put on your clothes and to go to a hospital, to take care of people who have COVID-19, I think is heroic. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. I think uh, the, the boys who went on the debarkement on the 4th of June uh, on the, on the, on, in Normandy are heroes. Mm -hmm. I think those are heroes. I think the one who's going to defeat Trump is a hero. I think that, uh, I think those are heroes, I, I, I think, to me, you know. Uh, what are your favorite names? The names of my friends. Oh. <laughs> That's it. I think, otherwise I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> a name is a person, you know. Right, right. I, I, would, I could love, you know, uh, Tancred, but I don't know any Tancred, so I don't <laughs> care about Tancred as a name. <laughs> Oh, or Enguerrand, or... Enguerrand, pretty good. But I could yeah. see you with a dog named Tancred, nevertheless. I could name my dogs Tancred, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe, next, maybe the next one. The um, next what one. Is it, what is it that you most dislike? Um, meanness. Mm -hmm. I think, and dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are the two things that would move. I don't like that. Yeah. And, and obviously, meanness is the one thing that sort of makes me just revolted, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. What is your greatest regret? Um, I told actually Jeffrey what my greatest regret was, and he was really upset. And I think my greatest regret was to have pushed away People have declared that love to me, you know, 40 years ago in thinking maybe I would have had a better life or something like that. And Jeffrey looked at me and says, oh, really? I said, no, <laughs> no wonder he's grumpy. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> but I think these are all, I mean, I don't, I think that I have many, many, you know, people say, oh, I have no regrets. I have plenty of regrets. There are plenty of things that I would have liked not to have said, plenty of things I would have liked not to have done, plenty of people I wouldn't have liked to have offended. But, you know, I don't have real regret. I'm, I'm, I feel incredibly grateful and uh, 
and uh, happier about the life that I have today. So I have no, you know, I have no re- no real regret. Yeah. You know, maybe I have one, maybe one sort of pointless regret is not to have become a historian, maybe, hmm. because I would have liked that. Yeah. You know, hadn't I, if I hadn't become an interior designer, I think having, you know, what you do, Caroline, is something that absolutely fascinates me. Because I think there's nothing that I find more interesting than research. And it's fascinating to go through things and discover things by oneself rather than have it, you know, put up for you. So that's maybe one regret that I have. I can I could imagine you would be a great historian because you have imagination. So oh, I think research without imagination is really arid and useless. But I think the way even you make things come to life, just talking to you right now for an hour, I can see... And I actually think that is the most important quality for historians, although I'm not convinced all historians have any imagination. Some do, but some don't. But I think you would be good because you could make something from the past come to life, which I think, I always thought that's the point of history, actually. I can't agree with you more. And I think I have to say, not because Caroline is there, but I think this is the incredible virtue of Caroline's books, is that history, you can, you know, you you can just see it. Caroline's description of the, of the court of the of the Comte de Chambord is something that's so incredibly vivid that yeah. you can just feel it. You can just you you there, and I think that that's obviously it's true. It's the point of history is that to be able to transpose your actual life in the life then and to see what the differences are and why you know and why things happen. It's it's true. It's just it's wonderful. And it's this kind of informed imagination. So you feel you it's. It's, uh, so Caroline is imagining what it's like at the court, but you know that everything has been researched and backed up. It's not just freely made up. So it has an internal coherence, which I love that you think you can rely on. Like, this is probably what is the most likely thing that it would have looked like or could have occurred based on what we know. Absolutely. And I think that's, I, I think that's why, you know, you look at, I think that the, the problem sometimes of historians is that uh, the problem of, people, people around us, is that they don't, they don't know that there is such a thing as history. There, there was such a time where people didn't have cars and then where there wasn't, you know, and they don't. And I think the, the historians is to put everything in, you know, in, in relationship with the past and not to say that the past was better, but the past happened. So like that, the present can be, there cannot be a present without a past. You can't, you know, and and if you and this is why I think I get crazy with politicians today is that they they lie, and I think that the point of history historians is not to lie is to tell things the way they were so you can inform the present and the fact that people you know that that politicians can lie makes me crazy it's like meanness, and I think true historians don't lie it's like reading about the great plague yeah, yeah. you know no it's like, and it's Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. No, I was just going to say one of the one of the great joys of being your friend is calling you or, or talking to you or emailing with you in the middle of the night and being anxious about something and having you write back. Oh, but darling, on the eve of the fall of Rome, people <laughs> enjoying eating vegetables from the garden. And, Sweetie, if you think about the Black Plague and the death toll, it's really not as bad today. And Europe came back. That you know, for you. 
I, I love it so much that history is is constantly a part of who you are and the way you think and the way you the way you see the world. I mean, I know that this is true in in your I work, do. right? Yeah, that, I do, absolutely. I think it is something that is truly, truly, truly important. And I believe that if people, you know, knew about history more, I think they wouldn't make the mistakes that they make. And I think it's the it's why I think literature is so important because. You know, no matter what you read, it informs your own judgment about the present, about your own feelings. And that to, to think that you feel in a void is not right. You know, my, my, my French analyst used to say, you know, the thing that you have to think about is that as far as human characters, there are 10 different types. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, you know, and again, you know, it's like history. It puts everything, it's relative. Then everything becomes relative. And then it's not all that bad, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that reminds me of Swan saying in Proust that there are only a certain number of human faces. So everywhere exactly. he goes, he sees Michelangelo's David or he sees, you know, Zippera from Botticelli. He sees these faces everywhere because there are only so many faces to see. Absolutely. You know, I always think about that because... Um, you know, I, I think I, I look at, you know, I have this lady who looks like my mother, but she's like a nice version of my mother. And it's really wonderful because I look at her and think, okay, she looks like my mother and she's nice. I mean, like, <laughs> so, Same face, different personality. Exactly. It's just so, it's so funny. I think this goes to a deeper Reluctance, though, I think we are reluctant as humans to even believe there's a past because I think we want to think we're utterly original and there's been nothing like us in our experience. And I think there's a, actually a kind of defense against the idea that I could be one of 10 types or I could have lived through this before or actually other people have suffered the same thing. It's sort of because you feel it diminishes and it doesn't have to do that. But I think there's a defensiveness against the idea that I'm just one of billions and billions of people, many of whom have maybe even lived through the same thing. So. But I think you're right. And I think that's sad. You know, I think, you know, there is, the, the, I think it's wonderful to know that things have happened before that, you know, you could relate to. And it's, it's the same thing that, you know, Saf said that, that to, to be able to think about happiness, the only way that you can think about happiness is to think that the world is, is the state of the world is one of despair. And so if you accept the despair, then you can be happy. And I truly, 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 truly believe that. I think if you accept, you know, the hopelessness of the world, I think it's not something that causes you to be unhappy. It, right. it allows you to be happy. Because if you lie to yourself and thinking, well, I'm never going to die, and my friends are never going to die, and I will always be happy for the rest of my life, you're going to be a really disappointed person. Yeah. Whereas if you accept the fact that it's a fact of life, people die, unhappy things happen, and you can't, and I think that's the problem of American culture, is that it's that this devotion to happiness that, you know, you have to be, it doesn't happen that way. It's not it's not the way that it should be. And it's going to make people incredibly disappointed. So they'll become enormously fat, eating sugar and, uh, and fat <laughs> food, you know. <laughs> um, how would you like to die? Like my dogs, when they're when they put to sleep. <laughs> 
Mm. I think I would love that. You know, I I'm the I look in their eyes and they close their eyes and they die. I think that's probably the way that I would like to go. You know, I tell Jeffrey every night, I say, please don't die before me. I think <laughs> I just, but it's true. You know, I think that, I think part of like almost be a state of personal happiness is the fact that, you know, I know that Jeffrey is the last person that I'll ever be with. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to be with anyone else. I don't want to die with anyone else. I just, and I think that's, Mm-hmm. Maybe it's very egotistical because he'll be alone after me, but you know. He'll have the dogs. He, he left it. I think he's a wasp. He's much more, much less emotional than we are. <laughs> <laughs> he can have the <laughs> Yeah. He'll be a little grumpier without you, but otherwise. Yeah. You know, stiff up a lip. I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, Robert, what is your motto? Uh. What is my motto? This is the last thing I'll ever buy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Was <laughs> that working out for you? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I just bought this desk and I was sort of, Jeffrey looked at me again and he said, we have six desks. Oh. And I said, yeah, but this one is really the one that I want. And it's the last I'll ever buy. And I know, you know, it's like when I lie, when if somebody asks me how I am, and I say, well, you know, I will lie. It's the same thing. It's like this motto, this impossible thing. It's like, oh, it's the last thing I'll ever buy. Well, no, but I hope. Yeah. It's like when my accountant looks at something and say, well, this is not taking the right direction. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can you can live in some hope. You tell yourself it's the last thing you'll ever buy, at least. And exactly, that yeah, you that's hope. Yeah, no, darling, it's not. I know that it will never be the last thing I'll ever buy. You know, Just, yeah, make all men. Yeah. Voila. <laughs> Um, so, Robert, we've added one question to the original Proust questionnaire, uh, which is, who would you like to hear? Uh, ideally someone who's alive and maybe even someone you know uh, as a guest on this podcast. Whose answers would you be very interested to hear? Do you know the truth? Mm. You, Caroline. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh, well, you know, I just did the podcast, I just did the questionnaire with Uli recently and it was, it was really fun. So sure, I, I can I'm going to listen it to it. But you know, the funny thing is that I think this strange questionnaire with the 36 questions now, and you, you, you sort of, and it makes you think about yourself in a ways that you wouldn't have thought otherwise. And it asks questions that are, you know, sort of important questions on who you are, and and it's, uh, and I guess that the answers are very, uh, are completely fascinating and telling. Well, yeah. I have to say, since I didn't know you before, so it's what a wonderful hour. And you said earlier the one emotion, no, no, the one quality you distrust is. Um, wisdom but I, well, people who feel they know something but i like the fact you are, you're very funny and actually to listen to you have a kind of wisdom that isn't imposing that isn't sort of as if you figured it out it's more like you have no idea what you're doing you're trying to get through the day i like that it makes you really feel that there's some hope actually that you, can get through the day. you are too kind it's just you know it's just the way you sort of go through the days 
And thank you. I can't. I knew you were going to be you. amazing. Thank you. You're so welcome. Lovely to meet you, Lee. See you thank soon. You.